0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ryan Driscoll-Tate, and our guest today is Betsy Gaines-Quammen. She's a writer and historian and conservationist, and she's the author of a new book called American Zion, Cliven Bundy, God, and Public Lands in the West. Already, the book has been hailed by one reviewer as the skeleton key, unlocking so many complicated and largely unquestioned myths of the West. The book is out now through Tory House Press. And today, we're excited to have her joining us, Betsy gaines Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here, Ryan.
0: So, Betsy, before we begin, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. I uh, spent many years as a conservationist, and uh, I was very interested in how religious points of view uh, influenced the way people looked at landscape and wildlife. And uh, I spent a number of years working with uh, Mongolian uh, Buddhist monks, as well as uh, Buddhist monks in Bhutan. And we were working on fisheries and snow leopard conservation issues. And I wanted to start to, to you know, I actually, I was interested in doing a PhD in, in looking at religion and landscape. Um, and I decided to do... My work on a religion I didn't know very much about, which was Mormonism, and to look at how that impacted public lands in the United States.
0: Wow, that's such a fascinating background. Could you tell us a little bit about where the inspiration behind this book came from? How did you come to write it?
1: So the book is uh, a version of my dissertation, although I should say it's it's a very uh, it it. it I worked on it a lot from the point of um, defending my dissertation to um, the the book being published last month. And um, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, what I wanted to do is uh, I pursued, my academic work, I I was, I'm passionate about public lands and they're really, really threatened right now for a variety of different reasons. But some of the biggest feuds I noticed were happening in Southern Utah and Southern Nevada. And so I looked at settlement in those areas and looked at how religious points of view influence proprietorship and, um, and we can talk about it a little bit. I don't want to get too deep into the weeds right now. But one of the ideas, and this is the title behind, or this is the reason behind my title, American Zion, is that when Mormon settlers came to the Great Basin and the Colorado Plateau and the Mojave Desert, they brought with them the notion of Zion, which is homeland. They had been promised homeland. By Joseph Smith, who was the Mormon prophet, it ha- had been promised in Missouri uh, because of mob violence and because of uh, bigotry, the Mormons were pushed out of Missouri. Um, there were some bloody, awful uh, occurrences that happened there. They went to, uh, excuse me, Illinois, and then once again, uh, after Joseph Smith was murdered, they were. Um, ordered out of of that part of the country, which they had been promised as homeland, as Zion. So by the time they got to the Great Basin, they were determined to keep that land. And so the idea of public land and the idea of Zion are, are in conflict and continue to be today.
0: Yeah, that's one of my questions, actually, is for listeners who aren't Mormon or specialists in Mormon history, what's it important for them to understand about the faith as it relates to Western settlement, you think it's partly that conflict between the two?
1: I think there are a variety of different issues, um, and we can get a little bit more into that as well. But uh, but I really do believe that part of the conflicts happening over public land, and, and for those of you who don't know um, the the Bundy family, my, my book centers around uh a group of Mormon, um, a, a family, a Mormon family called the Bundy family, Clive and Bundy, Ammon Bundy, and Ryan Bundy, who uh, are are launching armed battles over public land and um, various rights that they see are being infringed upon um, because of federal regulations. But I think that there is a group of um, Latter-day Saints or Mormon people who are determined to hold on to these lands and their idea of rights on these lands, because this is Mormon homeland. This is something that came with them, uh, with the first settlers that, that came into this area and have stayed with them ever since, third generation after generation.
0: Yeah, that connects really well uh, with the opening line of your book, which is a wonderful aphorism. You write, a map of the American West is a Rorschach test. What do you mean by that, and why is that so important for this story?
1: Well, when you look at that test and you look at ink blots, uh, I I think that the the idea is to um, understand that everybody sees uh, different visions with, within these these different designs, and so. Uh, so I believe that with the West, we all have different ways of viewing things, and um, you know the, the the West is such a wonderful imagined landscape in, in terms of we have we have so many different stories and so many different things that we ask of the West. I I, I spend a lot of time in my book talking about the fact that in addition to uh, Latter Day Saints viewing the West as as homeland or sacred space. First and foremost, we have to realize that this is sacred space for um, Indigenous nations, and so one of the first layers, or one of the first things that we see, is um, sacred Native homeland. That's what this place originally was, and then it was settled, and uh, and so we had the the narrative of of genocide, and we had the narrative of of um, claiming um, places that that Indigenous people had lived on top of that we have agricultural stories people see the West as pasture land or people see the West as a m- wonderful space for um, you know recreating or the place where they um, can find peace or the place where they commune with wildlife or the place where they go mountain biking or bring their families or you know it just it's it, it goes on and on um, and uh, I, I think I also talk in this book, I mean, the West actually now, um, I, I'm afraid that that it's imagined in ways that it, it doesn't, it isn't, isn't. <laughs> it's, you know, um, and, uh, and so what are these kind of hangovers of these imaginations uh, or this imagination and, and what does that mean um, when we have stories that, that don't, when we all have various stories and they collide? I I guess I, I would say.
0: Yeah, I want to come back to some of those myths. And I think you did a really good job introducing the Bundys. But I want to ask you, for even listeners who might not remember those standoffs that happened just a few years ago, why are they famous?
1: Well, I went to visit the family in 2015 after they had engaged in an armed standoff over cows that were being confiscated by the government because Clive and Bundy, the patriarch of the family, hadn't paid grazing fees since 1993. So he had had these cows uh, illegally grazing uh, in the Mojave Desert and uh, hadn't paid for any grazing fees. And so finally, after decades of, of court proceedings, the, the government was given um, the, the go-ahead to, to confiscate these cattle. And he brought together militia members from all over the country. Uh, it, was, it was very, very uh, there was a lot of support when that happened. And and there were there were a lot of guys with AR-15s aimed at the um Las Vegas Police Department, um, the 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 law enforcement team, um, FBI, uh the BLM, which is the Bureau of Land Management. And it ended, um, and the standoff ended by the government backing down. That was incredibly empowering to the family. They felt like they'd gotten away with it, they felt like they were justified, uh, even though they'd been breaking the law for years. And so they became this very um, notorious family who had, quote unquote, won their battle. Um, over public lands, and and they really um, began to empower other people. Two years later, Ammon Bundy, Cliven's son, uh, went to the Malheur Wildlife Refuge in Oregon, uh, took it over for 41 days. Uh, again, an armed takeover. This time. Protesting a variety of different things. And and as I say in my book, it it seemed to change uh, every day. They wanted to get the land back to the miners, the loggers and the ranchers. Uh, It had been a a northern Paiute reservation that their understanding historically um, was quite, um, quite they didn't have a historical understanding. Um, they had gone to the aid of a, um, of a, a ranching family, the Hammonds who had, um, been sent to jail for arson. And so, um, that was another part of their protest. So they had, they, they didn't quite have their, their story together about what they were protesting. Nonetheless, uh, they hung out there for 41 days and, um, and and finally, they were um, they were going to a meeting in another town, and there was a roadblock, and a number of them were arrested, including Ammon and his brother Ryan, um, and uh, and a man was shot, Lavoy um, and they were they were arrested, the 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 Bundys.
0: Yeah, I remember when this was a national news story, and they were becoming symbols of a modern day sagebrush rebellion, which we'll talk about in a moment. But I wanted to ask you, you know, how did you come to meet them and, and connect with them and interact with them in person?
1: Well, when I first started uh, interacting with them, I just picked up the phone and called their landline uh, in in uh, Bunkerville, Nevada. They picked up uh, that they um, had been known as being difficult to, to interview to a certain extent, although. Um, I, I think that really depends on who was talking to them. I was a PhD student who was very interested in their uh, religious beliefs. And so I asked if I could go and um, visit them at their ranch uh, and they welcomed me. They were, they were quite um, friendly and had me come and stay. I, I think I was there for about three hours uh, talking to them about their faith and why their religious beliefs were um, so important in their campaign uh, because that was the thing I was interested in, and they were very eager to talk about that aspect. Um, I think also I had read the Book of Mormon. I uh, understand. I understood um, where they were coming from, and they felt comfortable talking to me, uh, about, it, because they, they actually were very, very eager to talk about, uh, Mormonism. And, um, I left their house with a book of Mormons signed by Clive and Bundy. And I, <laughs> I, um, I, I, after that, um, it was easy for me to have access to them.
0: Yeah. I remember so much of the coverage at the time focused on their attitudes towards government. So I think you coming at it with the questions about their religion was probably getting at something new. Something else that you write in the book, you say at one point, quote, Cliven Bundy will tell you that his land war is part of being Mormon, unquote. I just wanted to give you the opportunity to expand a little bit on what you mean by that, how the Bundy's family's faith influences their political beliefs and attitudes towards the public lands, and the government as well, if that matters.
1: Uh, It does matter. And I think it's really important to remember that um, early Mormon history is one of anti-government sentiment. I mean, this, this was a group of people who were essentially kicked out of the United States. Um, and again, they, they, they tried to settle Zion in two different places. Actually, I, they started, um, in New York. That's where the, the sort of faith came out of New York state. And, uh, and then they, um, they went to Ohio. And from there, they went to Missouri, and then they went to Illinois, and they went to the Great Basin, finally, after, um, you know, sort of being pushed out for various reasons. And so they were really angry at the government at that point. And so when Brigham Young began to establish a Mormon empire, and that really was what he was trying to do, he Saw this as an opportunity to create what he called Deseret, which was a Mormon empire. It was at the time outside of the United States. It was it was it belonged to Mexico, and uh, and then a treaty a year later put it back in the hands of the United States. But uh, but he was he was incredibly angry um, at at the American government. And in addition to that, there's this uh, history of. A military, a military theology is, is uh, how I describe it in the book, uh, where the, the Mormon people, in order to protect themselves uh, from the uh, mobs in Missouri, created a first a vigilante group called the Danites, and then they created the second largest um, military um, body next to the U.S. Army, and that was called the Nauvoo Legion. And they took the Nauvoo Legion, uh, you know, sort of culture to the Great Basin. And so you have um, very angry people uh, at the government and you have a military theology. And these early church roots uh, very much, um, you know, are a part of, I I think, a a very relevant history Um, when you look at the Bundys and you look at their inclination to be militant, and you look at their inclination to be Mm anti-government.
0: It's interesting as well that they're also mixing these ideas with the myth of the cowboy. Could you share just a little bit about how uh, Mormon ideas and the myth of the cowboy are complementing and reinforcing one another? I mean, especially as it relates to indigenous dispossession on these Western landscapes.
1: Yeah, it it is. I mean, I, uh, I think that and I do think it's changing. I, I, I think that, that there used to be such a romance with the idea of the cowboy. And when you look at the, the history of the cowboy or the history of livestock production on, uh, public lands, it, it's got a very sinister side. I, I, I think, uh, when I was talking about what happened in Malheur, that's, that's, um, that to me, and that was the, the Oregon, uh, the Oregon takeover narrative, when the Bundys went to Malheur and were demanding that it go back to the rightful owners, the loggers, miners, and um, ranchers, they neglected to to um, understand that this had been the Northern Paiute uh, Reservation. It was traditional land, and then it was "Quote unquote," given back to them um, as a reservation, and um, and they still have a, a reservation adjacent to the Malheur Refuge, but uh, but the the reservation um, had been uh, sort of targeted by uh, ranching interests that were coming from California and were trespassing on. Um, on Northern Paiute lands. So, um, so this, this ranching, um, ranching was very parasitic in, in, uh, in the, um, kind of old West. Um, uh, not only were they infringing on, uh, um, native lands, but they were also, um, it was very violent between different ranchers. Uh, the, the rancher on Mollier, the, the guy who, um, was the the kind of ranch hand looking after the cattle of this very wealthy rancher was shot by a neighbor, and there's this violence, a um, history of violence that goes with that. But you know, the, the cattle ranching, um, you know, again, as you said, it, it's a it's a history of taking over native spaces. Um, and it's also got a history of heavy subsidi- or subsidizing. Um, it's got a history of en- environmental um, destruction. Um, it, it's it's not, and it's and it's a not necessarily a productive uh, way to use the land, especially when you're looking at the Mojave Desert where Cliven Bundy is raising his cows.
0: Right, right. You know, one of the things you do really well about this book is blend that earlier historical accounts with the present. And one of the things I want to ask you, and this this might not be fair to ask an historian, uh, but to look a little bit more into the future, um, you know, at one point you write, quote, I had hoped that in the story of the Bundys and the American public lands, as in any fine old Western, that the good guys would win and the bad guys would meet swift justice. But it's not so simple as good guys versus bad guys in this horse opera, nor has justice really been served, unquote. What is the outcome of all this as it stands today? What role do you think the bundies will play in the future?
1: Well, that's actually a super interesting question, and um, I mean, I'll I'll be honest. Right now, the bundies are winning. Um, I have um, a friend who was just in Gold Butte, which is the. Uh, area where Clive and Bundy is is uh, continuing to to um, move his cattle, and they're digging trenches on a national monument, which means they're they're digging these kind of troughs to lay pipe so that they could build more um, uh, troughs. For the uh, for the uh, for the cows, they're not supposed to be any cows there. And they're continuing to to do these operations on public lands without any pushback that 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 place has become lawless. I mean, it absolutely has, uh, because. not only are the BLM, the the Bureau of Land Management, who who manage that area, reticent to go down there because it's dangerous, it is. But the the current administration has no interest in enforcing environmental laws, especially right now during pandemic. Um, you know, we're seeing that unraveling. Um, but I do want to just say uh, quickly, um, right now, Ammon Bundy's single most important campaign, is agitating over stay-at-home orders during the pandemic. And this has been something that he's seen as his next big cause. So so this is something he's protesting right now. Yeah. You know, earlier
0: I compared them to the Sagebrush Rebellion in the 1980s or even the Wise Use Movement in the 1990s. Um, how should we understand the legacy of the Bundy's feeding into these earlier histories of the West I mean in some respects it comes down to a familiar theme of Westerners fighting against the feds
1: yeah I mean there's certainly a long history um, as you said you know this this goes back to the sagebrush rebellions of the 70s and you know that really was over trying to get um, the states to control public lands um, that is somewhat of a tricky issue because there are a, a lot of People on both sides of the aisle um, that do not want federal lands to go to the states, Um, that the states would not be able to afford that. In the 80s and 90s, it became this whole issue of jobs versus the environment. And that's the way they framed it in order to get sympathy that, you know, is a spotted owl more important than feeding the family of a logger or, you know, these kind of ways of, of framing things. I don't know what we're going to see. I mean, it's really hard to envision what's going to happen with another four years of this current administration because public lands are completely in the crosshairs and they the the Bundys um you know they, they have a lot of support um among some of these state legislatures and or legislators and um and these county commissioners. Um, I, I you know when I first started working on this I thought these guys were real outliers and I've seen this kind of mentality spread through rural pockets and it's dangerous. What I wonder, and I, 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 it's when I'm feeling hopeful, when we get to the other side of this, are we going to see this is an opportunity um, to look at how to move forward by creating jobs that are... Um, Green. I mean, I you know I hesitate to use the Green New Deal because um, I think that has some baggage. Um, But I do think one of the things that that I was working on as a conservationist in the early two thousands, we were looking at working with unions to do road ripping in areas we were trying to rehabilitate for grizzly bear habitat. And I wonder the way to get around the Bundy narrative is to say the Bundys are expensive. We're subsidizing them. Public land ranching is expensive. We shouldn't be eating this much beef right now anyway. How are we going to create good jobs and be sustainable and look at things that are happening right now on public lands that aren't sustainable, that are costing us money, that are not going to provide long-term opportunities, um, and that are that are ripping up our landscape that we need more than ever because they need to be undeveloped carbon sinks. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, that's a long way of answering your question. I I,
0: no, those are all excellent points. And it actually gets me to wonder, and this is a question that kept coming up for me when I was reading your book, is because you were interviewing the Bundys, um, but then offering a a criticism of them, I've wondered, you know, have have the Bundys read your work? Do you have a sense of their reaction to it?
1: I don't know if they've read my work. Um, I've I've written about them uh, in a couple of different publications. I, I've I've written about them in the New York Times in um, 2016. I just wrote about them last week um, in the New York Daily News. Um, I think I've been really fair. I've never taken any low blows, and I know that that there's been people who've written about them who who've you know. Absolutely made fun of them. Um, and I've, I've tried never to do that. Um, I last talked to Ammon on March 18th, um, because I knew that this was going to be something that he was, um, going to start pushing against the, these stay at home orders. Uh, and I had an hour long conversation with him and he was unbelievably pleasant and respectful. And, um, you know, I, 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 Don't agree with what they're doing. I am horrified that they're getting away with it. Um, But I hope that I've been fair, and um, and I've always tried to, rather than, you know, outright condemning their actions, which I do, but to understand where they're coming from, so that I can present it in in a in a way that, as I said, is fair. And I certainly don't think it's um, okay when people make fun of their beliefs or make fun of the the um, um, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints because um, they, the the um, LDS Church has condemned their actions uh, and the LDS Church stopped having services on March twelfth before many other. Um, Uh, other denominations uh, stopped gathering. And so there are, I have friends in Utah who say that the reason why Utah has such low numbers right now of COVID-19 is because the Mormon church stopped having services. So I think that's important to note.
0: You know, this is getting me back to a point that you had raised earlier, but Frankly, do you think that the ideology at work here is is gaining strength, gaining momentum? I think that oftentimes we see these protests break out. They make the front page of the New York Times for a couple of days or something, and then we don't hear anything else about it. What's at work, though, during the interim?
1: I do. And I... I, I think for a variety of different reasons i i mean i think you can see this across the board in the united states right now there's so much di- division and um and it's being enacted on social media um i see i spend a lot of time uh on on these social media sites and the vitriol is really shocking um i'm not sure how we're going to I don't know how we're going to move forward with this because, you know, it, it wasn't just Ammon Bundy and Ryan Bundy at Malheur. I don't know if uh, you've heard about a man named Matt Shea, who is a um, uh, he's a state legislator in uh, Washington state. And he's come forth with a manifesto on, you know, I think it's biblical the biblical rationale for our war, and I might not be getting that quite right, but it's a manifesto saying, essentially, if people don't agree with you, you can kill them. And, and I'm, I'm, the thing that really worries me when you start to bring religion and wrap it up in these fights is you have people feeling like they are justified to do terrible things and um, and you know because God says it's okay to kill your enemy or and, and I hate to get into such dark thinking, but I've seen it more and more and more um, this that you know at first I thought it was saber rattling uh, and it's not Ammon uh, who's bringing AR-15s to rallies in Idaho right now. it's it's not but we are seeing militia, that that he has n- networked with, um, bringing these weapons, and you know, I I don't I don't know what to think other than things are getting weirder and scarier.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you had mentioned that the LDS Church took a stance against the positions on the resistance to stay at home orders in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, but did they take stands of the church, take a position on the resistance and standoffs on public lands, or at least maybe their use of the faith in that way?
1: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. They they issued during the 2016 um, standoff a statement that said, um, essentially, we condemn the Bundys using scripture to justify their standoff. Um, and, and at the time, the Bundys were referring um, – to a, the White Horse prophecy, which is an apocryphal, uh, the church has condemned this particular prophecy. But it was it was a prophecy that supposedly came from Joseph Smith the year before he died. The White Horse, um, referring to you know the, the idea that in times and revelation and the four horsemen of the apocalypse, um, and his twist was the White Horse will be the Mormon people um, who were, who will protect. The country, as the Constitution hangs by a thread, and that's what motivates uh, the the Bundys is they really see themselves as heroes in a war to protect the Constitution.
0: How do the Bundys respond to that when the Church, as an institution, negates some of what they're saying? Uh, how do they square that with their beliefs?
1: Well, that's a really interesting question because um, they Ammon has said. We have supporters among the the sort of h- higher up. In ter- you know, the Mormon Church is extremely hierarchical, and um, and he said that he has uh, Mormon support among leaders. Uh, you know, they're a little bit mum because the Mormon Church is mum about so much. Um, you know, financials and leadership and decision making, and and uh, and. But Ammon has said we have. Great support at high levels in the church, uh, but he said there have been socialists, and again, this is the you know bad word that people use, socialist, um, and um, you know there's socialists that are infiltrating the the middle ranks, and they're the ones that are the environmentalists, and you know, and and so he's 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 claims that he has broad support among high church leaders.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that you're really driving home there too is the diversity within the Mormon church. I think even in popular culture, political culture, you have you know the button down Mitt Romney Mormon, and then you have this you know flannel clad Ammon Bundy Mormon, and they take different positions politically.
1: Yeah, and and uh, again, you know this White Horse prophecy. The the church cannot stand people talking about the White Horse prophecy because they've come out over and over again and said it's apocryphal. Um, and uh, but you know with with Mitt Romney, that's another thing. It was you know very recently reported, I think by. Tim Egan in the New York Times, who said, uh, "Oh, is Mitt Romney upholding the White Horse prophecy by voting to impeach Donald Trump?" And um, and so, so it does. It comes up, you know, what who, which Mormons are protecting the Constitution at any given time? You
0: know, since I have you here, I wanted to ask. Uh, Advice you might have for researchers who are writing about the recent past, uh, who are writing about people and struggles that are still ongoing, people who are still alive—you've done such a great job of that in this book. And I was wondering if you have any wisdom to impart on others who might be doing that
1: as well. Yeah, I think that to me that was one of the things that kept this really um, interesting—to look at how history explains a modern situation, and um, and so a lot of what I. Well, no, I take that back. What I did for my dissertation, I did an interview with the Bundy family. But when I finished my dissertation, I I defended in 2017 um, and then started working on this book. I looked at who I could interview uh, that had stories that I knew about that had ancestors You know, of folks that I'd met uh, or, you know, in one case, um, I I talked to a woman whose mother had had grazed um, her uh, longhorns in the Grand Staircase Escalante um, National uh, Monument and uh, was able to go and talk to her about her mother. Her mother passed away, uh, I believe, in 2005. And um, and so it allowed me to. Look at the characters that I had in my dissertation, and then to go and talk to family that was still alive, that could that could tell me about their stories. i I was able, in the coolest, um, one of the coolest things that I did uh, is in my dissertation, I talk about a um, man, a, he was a Mormon who was supported by um, Brigham Young. In um and grabbing up a mining claim in in uh, in at the time was in um, Utah, but it's now in the state of Nevada. And he, I was talking about the the struggles between mining and um, Mormons and this kind of cultural feud because they they were coming at. Um, these issues so differently. The Mormons really disapproved of the mining culture. And um, and I was able to go and see where this guy, he'd been poisoned and he was buried in this place, um, it, you know, kind of in the middle of nowhere. And I got to stay with the family. I got to horseback ride across the landscape. And so it's really fun as somebody who's writing a dissertation to think about ways you can engage with people who who have connections to, to your characters and, you know, whether it's their kids or their, you know, brothers and sisters, or they're even their grandkids. Um, that, that is, that's a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you you and I have talked about this beforehand, but, this is not a dusty monograph book. So I was actually wondering if you could talk and share a little bit of your insights about transforming, you know, a dissertation that's written for a very select academic audience and transforming it into a trade press book and, and how you went about doing that and really making it so accessible, so readable for non-experts.
1: Well, I am really lucky because I'm married to a writer and um, and I, I'm married to a writer who, um, who, he's a science writer. And so he takes science that can be kind of clunky and sort of boring. And he turns it into, um, really interesting narrative. And so, um, so I, I was lucky enough to have that example. Um, and so when one of the things that David, my husband talks about is when you're writing, are you thinking about what somebody's reading right now? Because when I was doing my dissertation, I was never saying, you know, I wonder what the... Am I telling this person a story that they're going to want to turn to the next page and read more about? Am I, am I talking to them in a way um, that is more storytelling rather than just, you know... Here's, I, I, you know what I mean, like proving my point or, you know, um, uh, um, it, it, quoting another historian with, you know, that backs up my point. And, and so I, I began to think about what somebody would be thinking if they were reading my material and what hook am I going to put that they're going to want to read more about my character or what, what story am I going to tell that, that actually has more, um, I don't know, like melody or, you know, something that, that resonates a little bit more than dusty academics. I mean, it's, it's not easy. Um, and I tell you the book at this point has probably been rewritten 30 times, um, but, but it's, it's gratifying, you know, because I think everybody, I mean, I, I've sat in my professor's offices and say, said, can I read your dissertation? And they'll say, no way. <laughs> we, we don't want anyone to ever read it. And, um, and it's true. Dissertations it's kind of like your first baby project as an academic. You know, this is my my first big thing. And um, and it's not going to be the best thing you write. I mean, at least that's, that's kind of what most people feel.
0: Yeah. Just to latch on, I think the word melody there is actually really a really useful one. Even just having shorter chapters that enable readers to digest the uh, information in a different kind of way is, is thinking consciously about who is reading the book. It's very different from a monograph that might have four or five chapters in a 300 page book.
1: Yeah. Cause I mean, I still had, a t- I mean, I've had people read the book and say, wow, there were times where there was a lot of information coming to me. And, and I was trying to tease that out a little bit, but um, you're, you know, if you turn a dissertation into a book, you're going to have A lot of information, (laughs) Um, but, but, um, I tried to make it a little more character driven. I tried to bring in, I mean, I don't know if I was successful, like kind of some humor. I don't know, but, um, but, uh, um, you know, some pop culture, um, some, you know, anyway, I, I, I tried to have fun with it and it, and it, the beginning of it is, it's not super fun, but when you get to the end of it and you're reading it and you're like, oh my God, this doesn't sound terrible anymore. <laughs> you know, like, like maybe, maybe this is something that people are going to be interested in reading. Um, it's a fun thing to do. I mean, I, I would encourage, I decided, and this was based on my dissertation committee. Um, My dissertation committee said, don't go with a, an academic publisher, go with a trade publisher. And, um, and I think that was a really, I mean, I'm not going to be a professor. So, you know, that wasn't something I needed on my resume, but it was a really fun thing to do. I'm, I'm going to continue to be a conservationist and historian, but I, I, I'm not necessarily going to teach. Although I, I do teach a little bit.
0: Yeah. it's. I mean, it's very well crafted, which is where I think that question for me was coming from. Um, I did want to ask you, I mean, I feel like we talked so much about the bunnies that we gave short shrift to some of the amazing scholarship we've actually done on Mormon settlement in the West. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, thinking broadly about the book, what surprised you the most when you were working on it?
1: What surprised me most in my research? Um, I think... I think what surprised me most in my research is, uh, you know, I came at this as a conservationist and, um, and I had, uh, I, I, I am biased. I mean, my, my, um, my biggest love is protecting public lands and protecting wildlife. Um, and, uh, I think that, uh, when I first started to research this and, and, you know, knowing that this was a really contested series of landscapes. I mean, the, the, and they just keep getting more and more, um, uh, you know, sort of, I mean, tense, but, but the story that, that I liked very much was the, um, story of Zion national park. Which was a very collaborative effort. And it's and it's interesting because it's the only collaborative effort that I know of in Utah. It was Utah's first national park. And it was something that local people were very much behind. At the time, there was still very much a rift between the United States and Mormon homeland. Uh, this was still, um, it was very, very fresh, uh, when, when they were starting to, you know, when, um, John Wesley Powell came and, and began to map the area, um, you know, Brigham Young was still alive. Um, it was, it wasn't that long after the, um, uh, Mountain Meadows massacre, which was a, uh, the Mormons, um, and, uh, and some, you know they 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 were able to talk some of the southern Paiute into participating although it was definitely um a mormon effort they killed hundred and twenty uh people who were um traveling across Utah territory uh towards california and they they murdered them um in retaliation for basically because they were mad at the government and um and so right after that you see the establishment of of um Mac- um National Monument, which was the name of um, Zion National Park before it became a national park, um, but it was interesting because it was named after Mormon homeland. I mean, if you understand what Zion means, it, it does not mean a national park. It is not a protected landscape. Zion is a built landscape. It's a used landscape. It's uh, sacred Mormon homeland. Is is. It's meant to please the eye of God by being used by human industry, and yet you have Zion National Park, the first national park in Utah, which was a conservation effort. and um, And I think that really surprised me. I, I I loved the collaboration that happened between local people and uh, and the government at that point. It, it was a, it's a nice story because the government really goes out of their way to take care of the local people during the establishment of the park. And, um, and, and I write quite about that, uh, quite a bit about that in my dissertation. Um, But, uh, but the local people, even though they had to leave the national park uh, when it was established in terms of they couldn't, you know, run sheep there anymore, or uh, raise pigs there anymore, they were kicked out. They still supported the park.
0: Yeah. You know, Betsy, we've taken up a lot of your time today. So before we let you go, I just wanted to ask you, what are you working on next? I know this book just came out, so I know that you probably have hopefully maybe some virtual book launches or book talks since we're, everything is virtual right now for a lot of us. But is there anything else on the horizon we can be excited about?
1: Well- I was supposed to be teaching a class in Mongolia this summer on Mongolian Buddhism. And I was so excited uh, because one of the projects that we did was uh, when I was working, uh, I I ran an organization that worked with Buddhist monks over there for a number of years. And we rebuilt a Buddhist monastery, and it became a site of conservation dialogue and Buddhism. And um, and it was torn down during religious purges, uh, sort of um, Soviet-influenced religious purges. And I was going to be going over there and t- teaching a class on the silk route. And, you know, because my expertise is, um, how do various religions view landscape? And so I was going to be, you know, anyway, it was going to be amazing. <laughs> and, 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 so I, I already had 20 students and, um, but that doesn't look like it's going to happen. So I'm, I'm sort of looking at my next project, uh, right now. Um, I've, I've had a, a I, it looks like I'm going to be doing something, um, this fall. Again, more Mormon history. Um, I'm writing a piece right now on the um, white horse prophecy that I mentioned earlier. Um, and uh, and I haven't exactly picked my next project yet because I was supposed to be on book tour right now, which I was super excited about, but that's not happening. Um, and we have been doing some virtual stuff. So I've been writing a little bit about themes in the book. Um, and I'm I'm actually going to have to sit down and decide what I'm going to do next. Um, or I will go crazy. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. I think the, what are you working on next question has become a little outdated on my podcast in part because during the midst of the pandemic, so much is on pause for so many people.
1: Yeah. I hope to do this Mongolian class next summer. I, I mean, I have a lot of people who've deferred and, you know, my, I just, I, my passion is religion and landscape and, um, and of course conservation and with the Mormon sort of, you know, route. It was n- they're not naturally a conservation oriented faith. Um, although that said, there there are quite a few um, conservationists within the church as well, like Terry Simpas Williams, who is an amazing voice for conservation.
0: Yeah. Is there a place our listeners could go if they wanted to find out more about you? A, a website or something they could tune into?
1: Uh sure. They can go to um dot uh, com. And, um, that's just a, a website about, um, the book and, and about, you know, projects that I'm doing. Um, other than that, I, um, they can read the book. First and foremost, yeah. <laughs> well,
0: Betsy, thank you uh, so much for joining us today.
1: Ryan, thank you so much for having me. And so thank you so much for your interest. I really, really appreciate it. And I'll be very eager to hear about your work and, on the Powder River.
0: Yeah, thank you so much.
1: You take care of yourself and stay, stay healthy.
0: You as well. And for our listeners, Betsy gaines Quammen's new book, American Zion, is out now. Betsy, you take care, okay?
1: Bye.